You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Fathers, we turn to your word. I pray that you would grant in these moments clarity of thought and a mind that is attuned to what you have to say to us and a heart that would be receptive of that. For Lord, there are times where it's difficult to preach your word. And yet, Lord, I have no ordination and no authority to do anything else but to preach your word. So I pray that in these moments, Lord, you would use me like a coin of the realm and spend me uh, as the king sees fit in the economy of your kingdom. Do something today, dear Lord, uh, that would bring you honor. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night of April the 15th, 1912, people are always interested, it seems, and caught up. What happened in the North Atlantic in the darkness of the middle of the night when a ship that had been called unsinkable went down. There were four captains that figure greatly into that story that night. The Titanic was captained by Captain Edward Smith, who was the most decorated man on the seven seas. He'd been hailed as the greatest captain of that day. And as he took the captain position of the Titanic's maiden voyage, it would be his last because he would retire when he reached New York City. He was one who evidently believed somewhat in what the press had said, that the ship was so great that it could not be sunk even by God himself. It was luxurious. No ship like it ever had been built. It was luxurious, it was huge, it was opulent. To book passage on the maiden voyage of the Titanic is like to pay um, all of these guys who are willing to send you up in a rocket into outer space right now. Uh, It was that kind of luxury. It was that kind of uh, experience. It was the single greatest experience of the day was to be on board the Titanic. But it went down because, in in part by the pride and the arrogance of the captain who ignored warning after warning after warning of icebergs in the North Atlantic. In fact, a German ship going the opposite direction radioed and warned the Titanic, there are icebergs just ahead of you. You need to change your course. But Edward Smith ignored the warnings. When that ship hit that iceberg, somewhere around the middle of the night, those people who were drinking and dancing and eating in the ballrooms of the Titanic heard the most ungodly scraping they could ever imagine. And then suddenly the ship came to a stop. They ran out of the ballrooms and onto the decks of the Titanic And there from that iceberg, pieces of ice 
had fallen onto the deck and the people picked up the ice and began to play with the ice from the iceberg that was already sinking the ship, not aware that what they were doing was playing with the very thing that was going to take them to their death. That is the book of Jude. That is the church. That for so many in the church today, we are dabbling and playing with things that will be the spiritual undoing of your life or the life of a congregation. You say, but the word of God tells us that the church will prevail. Yes, the church will prevail. But what about this particular church? That's what Jude is concerned about. Let me take you back now to the North Atlantic, to just 17 miles away from the ship as she began to fire the distress flares. The Corinthian, whose captain was Captain Lord, believe it or not, uh, was one of the most uh, despised captains uh, in, the, in the Navy. Uh, people did not like him. He was not likable because he was self-centered. He was wrapped up in what was best for him. His whole thing when he saw the flares of distress was, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, I'm going to bed. And the Corinthian that was 17 miles away simply decided the status quo is what we'll keep. So we will just sail on. There was a third captain there that night. That captain was the captain of the Samson. It was only seven miles away. But he turned his ship around in fear that he would be caught. And he sailed that ship in the opposite direction of the Titanic because he was leading an expedition catching seals in a part of the Atlantic where it was against the law. The fourth captain that night uh, was the captain of the Carpathia. The Carpathia was a cruise ship itself. And that captain that night turned when he saw the flares. Though 57 miles away, he turned his ship toward the distress. And he walked out onto the bow of the ship. By the way, I've just got to tell you this. You know the bow of a ship and that pole that stretches out the front of these older ships, sailing ships, where they would put a sail, a triangular sail that would catch the wind up front so that it would steer that ship in the direction that it should go. He walked out. That bow of that ship, the bow, the prow, and the old sailors would put boards so they could reach that sail to adjust it. Do you know what the planks on the prow of the ship are called? The pulpit. The captain of the Carpathia went to the pulpit that night, to the very bow of the ship, and he began to pray. And as they reached the waters where the Titanic was going down, he began to give direction all around, and they saved 700 people who would have drowned that night. Four captains, four ships, Almost symbolic of the church. What will we do in these days? 
where we live in an arrogant pride that says we've heard it all, we've seen it all, and we cannot be taught or warned of anything. We are comfortable with who we are. Or are we the captain who simply says, uh, come wheel a woe, the only status we know is quo. We keep the status quo. Don't upset. Don't, don't preach hard. Don't, don't go into the judgment of God. Don't talk to us about things that would cause us to be unhappy. Keep us a happy, calm congregation. Or would we be the captain of the Samson? It says, I'm involved in things that are sinful and ungodly. And I will run and hide in order not to have to admit what's going on. Or would I be like the captain of the Carpathia and stand at the front of the ship and say, we're heading into the direction that we need to go because our mission and our call is to rescue the perishing, to save the dying, to snatch in pity those who are headed to hell and the grave. That's what God's called us to do. In just a few weeks, we're going to have a missions conference here. And it's my prayer and my desire and my hope that all of us that come to this church will be here to support and be a part of it because the mission of the church is the great commission. We are to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to our next door neighbor and to the rest of the world. If you have your copy of God's word, go with me to Jude, to this preacher's warning. This pastor's warning as he speaks to a church that's been infiltrated with apostates. Those who are trying to pull the church off of its mission and into other areas. Into areas uh, that are out of God's will and really out of God's word. He's going to come and he's going to give the church a warning. He's going to give a warning to the people of God. And what he's going to warn them about is this is that you must contend for the faith. Now, if you've got your Bibles open there, that's in verse 3. That is the main verb of these 25 verses. I've shared that with you. He has said this, we must take a stand in a difficult day. Not when there's just persecution from the outside, And there is perversion that is coming up on the inside. The people of God are to stand and to say, we stand for the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, if you'll watch with me, I'm going to take you to verse 5. And in verse 5, you come to a major verb there. And that verb there is this, I desire. Uh, It is an interesting word in the Greek. The word desire there is the word bulomai. and, And it means this, this strong driving passion. I have this strong driving passion right here. And what is that driving passion? It is to remind you. Uh, Though you know all things once for all, you know this. I'm coming back to tell you what you already know. Uh, but you, you may not be living it out. You may not be acting it out. You may not be fleshing it out as a believer. But I'm just going to simply remind you that to contend for the faith, 
If you're going to stand for the faith, then you're going to have to be involved in a faithful obedience to the word of God. To contend for the faith involves faithful obedience to the word of God. That's what he's driving home here. To those who are believers, verse 5, 6, and 7 is one point. Uh, verse 8, 9, and into 10 is the second point. And I want you to look at this with me this morning as this comes as a warning. By the way, Jude's doing something. Dr. Vines, who wrote his PhD dissertation on Jude, uh, says that uh, Jude is preaching a very typical uh, rabbinic sermon that you'll find in the Midrash. The Midrash is a volume of rabbinic exposition. What the rabbis would do would be this. They would take an Old Testament passage. And by the way, let me tell you, this is where preaching comes from. If you're going to do text-driven preaching, expositional preaching, this is exactly what the rabbis would do. They would take a piece of scripture. They would do the exposition. They would do the illustration. And they would do an application of it. Those are the three parts of every movement of every sermon if it is a text-driven passage. Now... That's what he's doing. He's preaching them a sermon. So he's going to do this exposition on three passages out of the Old Testament in verse 5, 6, and 7. And then he's going to use it really as an illustration and the, applica and the application is very clear. So I want you to come and I want you to look with me because this is what Jude is saying to us. We are to be reminded. We are to remember the eternal principles of God. That's five, six, and seven. We are called to remember. He's calling to your memory what you already know, and that is there are eternal principles of God. Now, what are they? He's going to use three different passages, three different illustrations. So if you're ready, begin to look with me, beginning in verse 5, and what you're going to see is the illustration of national apostasy. See also America, the year 2022. Uh, national apostasy, a national falling away, a turning away uh, of uh, the, the nation from the things of God. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, what he's talking about is this. And in fact, you can put your finger there in Jude and go back to Numbers chapter 14, and you're going to catch the passage that he's referring to. He's making reference to this passage in Numbers chapter 14 that after God had come and had delivered these Hebrews uh, and saved them and kept death from them on the night of Passover because of the blood of a lamb that was on the doorposts of these Jewish homes, these Hebrew homes, after he saved them, after he enriched them and led them out to the Red Sea, after he opened the sea and saved their lives from the Egyptian army and took them across the Red Sea, got them to the other side. After he had fed them in the wilderness and watered them in the wilderness and got them to Sinai and gave his covenant to them, they come to a place in Numbers chapter 14 called Kadesh Barnea. And there at Kadesh Barnea, he says, here's the land that I have promised you. All you have to do is walk in and it's going to be yours. 
And what do you think the people who had experienced that deliverance and that salvation and uh, that sustenance from God and that covenant of God and that protection of God, they reveal in that moment what had been in their heart all along. And in fact, do you know that's what God was doing with them? I know that you're in Numbers chapter 14 because I ask you to do that. And I'm convinced that you as a sweet congregation do what your pastor asks you. So you're there. But just look over to Deuteronomy chapter 8 where God says this. You'll remember all the way which the Lord your God led you in the wilderness these 40 years. He wanted to humble you, testing you. He wanted to know what was in your heart, whether he, you would commit, keep his commandments. He's saying this to the next generation. Because their parents had died in the wilderness because what was in their heart was this. We want you to rescue us, but we are not willing to trust you with our future and our lives. And God speaks to that generation in chapter 14 of the book of Numbers. Listen to what he says. Numbers chapter 14, verse 32. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. They will suffer for your unfaithfulness. He says, because of your unfaithfulness, parents, your children will suffer. I won't go any further than that. Until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days. For every day you bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who have gathered against me. To say no to God Almighty and what he calls you to do personally or congregationally, God says it is evil and he says when you do it, It is opposition, not against the pastor, not against the elders, not against the staff, but it is opposition against God. Feeling good? It gets worse. That's a national apostasy. The whole of the nation said no to God. And because of that, God said judgment's going to fall. Number two, secondly, you're going to come to angelic autonomy. Now, here's the second passage that he's going to refer to, and it's Genesis chapter 6, really, verses 1 through 4. And he's also going to reach over and use as an illustration what comes out of an apocryphal book called the book of Enoch. Now, I don't have time to get into all of that, and Denzel Washington didn't have anything to do with this. It's the book of Enoch. Um, Y'all didn't see that, did you? Well, anyway, uh, do y'all ever watch a little bit of TV from time to time? Well, well, you know, he was a great actor, but this has nothing to do with that movie. The book of Enoch was written, it is not inspired word of God, but he uses it as an illustrate, much like I would reach back to Dickens, or I would move over to Shakespeare, or I would go to Keats, or, or someone like that and use a piece of, uh, of current literature as an illustration. It's what he's doing. He's referring back to these angels that God had created. These angelic beings that God created who did not, verse 6, keep their own domain. God, God created them and God placed them in a particular domain. 
Just beneath, in fact, I'm going to reference back Ephesians chapter 1 right here because you, you see something interesting in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 where it says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. He is speaking about uh, this area. If you look back in verse 20, Uh, that uh, there is this area that is right below where Christ is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. It's far above. It's far above this area that God has created and placed angels, rulers, and dominions. These are types of angelic beings and powers All of this area where God created them and gave them this rule and this domain. And God said, these borders are as far as you will go. But there were those angels who wanted what God had. They wanted their position to be where God was. To sit in an equal seating with God Almighty. And so they crossed borders in disobedience. They abandoned their proper abode, the place that God had set for them. And he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. God brought judgment on them. You can go back, and I don't have time to do this, to go back and to look at what these angels did. And I'll just give you a brief thumbnail sketch here. These angels lived right there where they saw the glory of Almighty God. They ruled and they moved and they had their being in this place where they saw the splendor and the majesty of the sovereign God. And yet they turned in their hearts of pride and said, this is not enough for us. We aren't satisfied with this. And they looked on the wives of men. They looked on the daughters of men and they lusted after them. And they crossed the border in order to fulfill their lust with the daughters of men. And what Jude is saying is this. Is that if you think this is impossible for you, you'd better think again. You'd better stop and realize that if angels who dwelt in, in, within eyesight and earshot of the glory and the majesty of God will allow something to draw their attention away and capture their imagination and play with their emotion and because of that, they leave that domain. Don't think that Satan can't put some shiny something in front of you to draw you away. Now he comes to the third. That's angelic autonomy. We're going to do what I want to do. And the third is that of cultural depravity. He comes to the whole issue of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah where the angels came to the home of Lot You get this out of Genesis 18 and 19. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality. That literally means excessive immorality, excessive sin. Sin, literally, if you wanted it in a, I guess it would be 
in Elizabethan terms, it would be that which is unnatural. It's almost a Hebraic concept to be a part of a sin that goes against humanity. Do I need to say anything beyond that? I don't think so. That that's what they were involved in. Let me show you the fascinating thing in this. The fascinating thing is this, is that you have angels that leave their domain to come and have relationships with humans. And what happened in verse 7 here in Sodom and Gomorrah is that humans came to the house of Lot to have relations with angels. You've got a whole messed up situation here is what you've got. And yet they came there with the desire in gross immorality and went after, it says, listen to this, strange flesh. That is what is not natural, what is not normal, what is not God created to happen. This is what they were after. They exhibited as an example in the undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now here is the whole thing, church, right here. Each one of these, verse 5, judgment comes over 40-year period. In verse 6, judgment is going to come at the end of the age when these angelic beings that are kept in chains of darkness will come to the day of judgment. And in verse 7, it is an immediate falling of the judgment of God on a culture, on a society, on a people. It is judgment Verse 5, judgment, verse 6, judgment, verse 7. And uh, you say, when I preach it, that's just not a popular thing to preach. It's not. And, and let, me, let me just let you in on something. It's not an enjoyable thing for me to preach. But it's real. And it's coming. And I would tell you this, it very well may already be here and we don't recognize it. Part of the judgment of God is that it has been operative for a period of time before people even understand that they're under the judgment of God. But let me tell you something. You can't deconstruct this from the word of God. Now I shared with you that I was going to talk to you about deconstruction because that's the big thing in the church today. The big thing is let's just deconstruct it all. Do you know what deconstruction, I'm going to give you the best way I understand deconstruction. Uh, I have over the years bought my boys, because they came out back that long ago, uh, Legos. And now I get to buy grandkids Legos. Why do I buy them Legos? Because I like to play with Legos. (laughs) And you you get one of these little boxes of Legos that cost $565. You know, one of these little small box, and you can build an X-wing fighter from Star Wars. And so you get that little box, and you take it home, and you open it up, and you push the grandkid out of the way, and you sit down, and you begin to put together this X-wing fighter. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. No, no, no. Don't try to help. I'm doing this for you. And you put the X-wing fighter together, and it looks just like the X-wing fighter on the cover of the box, and you've got that. Now, do you know what deconstruction is? Deconstruction says, no, I don't want a cross-wing fighter. What I want is I want a pirate ship and I take the cross-wing fighter apart and I put it back into some distorted, gross, unrecognizable glob of just Legos put together and I say, there is my pirate ship. And if it's a young enough grandkid, you agree with them. 
Uh, but the fact of the matter is, that's what we're doing in the church. I don't like a word about judgment, and so I'm going to deconstruct all of this about my faith and about the word of God and about the church, and I'm going to take the judgment of God out, and I'm going to put it all back together. And what you put back together is your image of what you think you want God to be. And your deconstruction of God doesn't change the fact God is a God of judgment. And you say, well, I, I just am uncomfortable with that. Well, listen, let me tell you something. I don't love it either. But I want you to listen to the word of God. Listen to Psalm 7. And listen to what the psalmist has to say in Psalm 7. David writes and he says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Listen to what the Lord says to Job. In Job chapter 40, just a few pages back in the word of God, in uh, verse 8, he says this, or let me pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 40. And the Lord answered Job on the storm, out of the storm and said, now gird up your loins like a man, I'll ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you nullify my judgment? Do you think you can deconstruct my judgment? Uh, Will that really happen? You will condemn me that you may be justified? You're going to deconstruct me and condemn me so that you can be right? Do you have an arm like God? God's asking Job, do you have an arm like me? Or, Or do you have a voice like me? Can you thunder with a voice like mine? In other words, he's saying, let me tell you something. I'm God, and you're not. And you say, but now, preacher, that's all Old Testament. Listen, I could spend the day walking you through the Old Testament on judgment, but you say that's all the Old Testament. What are you going to do with Jesus when Jesus stands and looks at the city of Jerusalem and weeps over it and prophesies uh, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the loss of the nation, and it happens less than 30 years after he dies and ascends back to the Father when the Romans come in and destroy the entire city and wreck the nation? What do you do with that? That's a word of judgment. What do you do with Peter when he stands there and he looks at Sapphira, whose husband, Ananias, had already died because he lied to the Lord. And Peter looks at her and says, the feet that took your husband out are here at the door. And she falls dead. What do you do with that? That's New Testament. What do you do with the resurrected Christ who speaks to seven churches in four weeks? Lord willing, in four weeks, I'm going to be... The first church we're going to is going to be the church at Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, listen to what is said in verse 16. As Jesus speaks to this church, I can't wait. I've never been there, but I'm going to get to see all these seven churches here. The church at Pergamum, the resurrected Christ says, Therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against you with the sword of my mouth. That's to the church The local church at Pergamum that the Lord says that to. You see, what Jude wants you to know is this. There are eternal principles of God that you can't deconstruct or change. And so he tells the church, you stand on the principles of God. You stand up against those who in any way would deconstruct the word of God or our God. You just stand there because it's not going to happen.
Now, let me give you the second thing. And the second thing is this. He wants to remind you of God's eternal word. The eternality of the word of God. There in Jude, beginning in verse 8 and verse 9. Now, verse 8 is going to be the exposition. And he doesn't give us a passage, but there's so many passages. In fact, let me, let me just do this. Let me just take you back to uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a false prophet that constantly hounded him. Somebody that was constantly disagreeing with everything Jeremiah said. Jeremiah had on a yoke. Do you remember when Jeremiah put on this yoke? Uh, you know, like they would put on an, a, 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 an oxen or you can put a yoke on a mule. He had this wooden yoke put around his neck. And uh, he comes to speak. And thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm in Jeremiah chapter 28. Uh, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring back. Uh, this is Hananiah. This is the prophet that uh, is always against uh, Jeremiah. Uh, the, the, the people have gone now or are going into Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah's prophesied, you're going there. And Jeremiah tells us they're going to be there for 70 years. In fact, it's Daniel who gets the book of Jeremiah and reads when those 70 years are up and begins to pray for the release of his people. So Jeremiah has prophesied from God, listen, you're going into captivity and you're going to be there for 70 years. Well, you got this hot shot, GQ, young, good looking, in blue jeans, tails, shirt tails hanging out. And he's coming up and he says, listen, let me tell you something. Within two years, I'm going to bring back this place, all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away. And this place and carried to Babylon. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went into Babylon. And you know what Jeremiah does at the end? After this slick guy gets through with his little sermonette that didn't even fit to preach in a kitchenette, Jeremiah looks at him and he says, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you've made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This year you're going to die because you have, you have counseled rebellion against God. And the next verse says, Hananiah, the prophet, died. In the year, in the same year, in the seventh month, he had a dream that wasn't worth listening to, buddy. He had a message that you'd better get up and run out the church. That's what he's talking about in verse 8. Are these dreamers who give all this great stuff that sounds so good. Verse 8, yet in the same way these men also by dreaming do three things. They defile the flesh, in other words. They are themselves involved in immorality and they encourage you. Get involved in any lifestyle you want to get involved in because the grace of God covers it. They reject authority. Listen, I'm my own truth. I determine what's truth for me. And number three, look at this. Athitusin. Um, Athitusin. They annul angelic majesties. Now, that's the heart of what he gets at here. They annul it. These angelic majesties. Now, you say, what is he talking about? If you go back to Hebrews chapter 2, you're going to discover 
that when God gave the law to Moses at Sinai, that law was carried, it was communicated and carried to Moses by angelic beings. And what Jude is saying here is that these men annul angelic majesties. In other words, they reject. Now, the Jews would understand this without an explanation. That these men were rejecting the word of God. They think that they are as great in their thinking as these angelic majesties who took the word from God and gave it to Moses. Now you say, how did all that work? I don't know. I'm just reading to you what scripture says. But in some way, these angelic beings uh, mediated the word of God to Moses. And they're saying these angelic beings that mediated the word of God, ah, we pay that no attention. They're nothing. There's nothing to them. Now here comes the illustration. That's verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This comes from the assumption of Moses, which is not an inspired piece of scripture, but it was what was generally believed happened that when Moses died, Satan showed up and said, I want the body. And God sends Michael and says, go, go get the body of Moses and I'll bury it. Go get his body and we'll bury it where no one can know. Well, Satan, according to the assumption of Moses, uh, said that uh, Satan shows up and said, no, he's a murderer. He's mine. You got to give that body to me. And Michael, who wanted to say, you old snake, you, didn't say that. He didn't say what he wanted to say. He didn't communicate his own thoughts. He didn't communicate his own ideas. What he did was that he simply spoke the word of God. The Lord rebuke you. Now, where is that in the word of God? Zechariah chapter 3. <laughs> uh, listen. I'm telling you, Bible is better than anything else you can do. Look, chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Devil, get the devil out of here. You have no place, no authority, no power. Well, here's Michael the archangel who doesn't go and speak his own word like these men do, who think so much of their own word that everybody's got to listen to them. Michael the archangel just simply goes and quotes God. And what Jude is saying is this, you had better understand we are under the eternal principles and the eternal word of God that does not change. Regardless of what man says, do you know today is the 70th anniversary of the death of George VI? Did y'all know that? George VI of England died on this date. The heir to the British throne was in Kenya at the time. His daughter, the royal princess, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary. She had no idea what was happening. She did not get that word 
until later in the day when her husband, Prince Philip, shared with her that her father had died. She did not know that as soon as they came into the room where the body of George VI was, and word got back to the prime minister, who was Winston Churchill once again, by the way, that Parliament had an emergency immediate session, that the Lord High Privy Council gathered on the steps of St. James Palace. Parliament would join him there. Churchill would join him there. Those men of, uh, of the state, the great officers of the state and the realm high officers of Great Britain would gather there and they would announce in this way, the king is dead. Long live the queen. And there in a moment, as fast as they could, a session was made. And the young girl at 21 had no idea what was taking place, but she was being made queen. She went there in that place, just a princess. And she came home, her majesty. It took over a year to plan the coronation of Elizabeth II. But on the day of the coronation, they brought to her the word of God. And the head of the Church of Scotland placed this large Bible in her hands and on her lap. And looked at her majesty and said this, here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the living oracles of Almighty God. In other words, dear lady who becomes queen, it trumps your word every time. That is what we have to hold to. Let's stand. All of us standing, our heads bowed. I have no idea how God uses a message like this to speak to the human heart. Other than it is a sobering word that the eternal principles of God do not change. Culture may change. Nations may change. The angelic hosts of heaven may change. But the word of God does not change. In fact, the word of God stands true right now, as much now as it ever has. And that is that if you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have no eternity with him whatsoever. But now this is the gospel, is that the God who spoke those living words that cannot be changed says this, come. Come to me, that to as many as believed on him, to them gave he the power to become the sons and daughters of God. That's the call of the gospel. Uh, that's what cannot be changed. Man wants to figure some way out to save himself. You can't save yourself. But Jesus Christ has already died for you. He's already paid the penalty for your sin. He went to a cross and died in your place and he rose from the dead to show you the power of everlasting life. And now he simply said, come to me. 
Come to me. Come to me. And I'll forgive your sins and remove your guilt and bury them in the sea. And as far as the east is from the west, I'll remove them and remember them no more. He wants to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Why not come to Jesus this morning? What better time, what better moment than right now to come to Him? Others of you that have visited this church, many of you that are here, you've thought about joining, you've thought about coming and being a part of this fellowship, I encourage you, what better day than this day? Some of you young people have wrestled with God's call on your life. I implore you, surrender to his lordship over your life. Tell him you'll follow him wherever he leads. Tell him you're willing to go. But in these moments, would you do whatever God's calling you to do? Father, you are almighty God. You are Lord. And as you say in your word, there is no other. So we come and we preach your word and we hold up and honor Jesus Christ and we ask Father not for wealth or land or riches or notoriety we ask for people to come to know you for souls to be saved for families to be restored for lives that are broken to be put back together Father that is our desire because that is your desire we pray that in your precious name would you come right now with heads bowed is the Lord leading you to a decision make it now slip out now step out now come here I'm standing I'm waiting you come as God speaks thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.